You're listening to an event from the U.S. Institute of Peace, part of the USIP Podcast Network. For more information about our work around the world, visit usip.org and check us out on social media. Hello, I'm Jonathan Pinkney, Senior Researcher for the Program on Nonviolent Action at the U.S. Institute of Peace. And it's my pleasure to welcome you uh, to this event series on people power, peace, and democracy. In these events, we'll bring together academics and activists, peace builders, and policymakers to discuss practical lessons learned from groundbreaking research at the intersection of nonviolent action, peace building, and political change. We'll talk about how mediation can transform nonviolent action movements, show the strategies grassroots movements has used to pressure warring parties to come to the negotiation table, and how action on the streets can carry those negotiations to a peaceful resolution. And we'll take a long-term look at how nonviolent action and inclusive dialogue and negotiation processes can help forge a long-term sustainable democracy that includes the voices of the most marginalized. We hope these conversations will inform and inspire you as together we seek to better understand and bring about a world where conflict and injustice can be resolved without violence. Thank you. From the fall of the Berlin Wall to the transitions to multi-party democracy in Sub-Saharan Africa, many well-known campaigns of nonviolent action have led to significant democratic reforms. And research shows that these cases are reflective of a deeper trend. Political transitions initiated through nonviolent action are almost three times as likely to end in democracy as any other form of transition. But how meaningful are these changes for groups that have been politically excluded and repressed? We know all too well that democratic institutions don't necessarily translate into meaningful political inclusion for those marginalized by reason of their race, ethnicity, gender, or other identity characteristics. How does nonviolent action affect these deeper dynamics? This is the question we're going to dig into in our conversations today. Uh, for our first conversation, I'm joined by three researchers who have been working together on a groundbreaking USIP research project examining changes in the inclusion of politically marginalized ethnic groups after successful nonviolent action campaigns. Subindra Bogati is the founder and chief executive of the Nepal Peacebuilding Initiative, with more than 15 years of experience working with national and international organizations on peacebuilding, governance, and development issues. Welcome, Subindra. Uh, Titik Firawati is a PhD candidate in the Department of Political Science at Northern Illinois University. Welcome, Titik. Uh, and finally, we have Dr. Chez Thurber. Uh, Chez is a political scientist who studies global conflict, security, and contentious politics. And he is currently an assistant professor in the Department of Political Science at Northern Illinois University. Uh, welcome, Chez. Thank you so much to all of you for being here. Uh, and let's, uh, let's dive right into it. Uh, so I'd like to start uh, with Chez. Uh, can you introduce us to your broad statistical research on inclusion after nonviolent action campaigns? Uh, what kind of nonviolent action were you looking at and what were you trying to understand? Yeah, thank you, Jonathan. So the motivation for this research actually came from my own field research in Nepal, uh, talking to uh, members of a Maoist group there who had uh, initiated and sustained for about 10 years a, a violent civil war. I was trying to understand because this came just five years after a successful nonviolent uh, movement that had led to democratization uh, in Nepal. Uh, what had pushed them towards this uh, this further step of, of taking up arms? And when I asked them questions about why they thought that using nonviolent techniques would not work for them, uh, they would say things uh, such as, well, you know, that's a strategy that works for the bourgeoisie, uh, but that doesn't work for, for people like us. And when you kind of uh, unstrip some of the, the Maoist language from that, uh, I think what they were talking about was that this was a, a, a tactic that produced gains uh, for people from uh, privileged groups, people who are already included in, in politics, that they saw civil resistance as kind of an insider's game uh, amongst elites, uh, but not something that produces uh, what they would describe as real social change. And so this project was kind of an, uh, an attempt to put that to the test. Uh, and it's not just uh, Maoists in Nepal who make these type of arguments. This is a, a pretty standard critique from 
uh, from the left, uh, uh, the radical left, in terms of how they view civil resistance and, and nonviolent tactics. And I think legitimately does point to a gap that exists in academic scholarship on nonviolent resistance, uh, which, as you pointed out, has highlighted the success of civil resistance campaigns when you define it in the short term uh, in terms of ability to depose a, a dictator. Um, or even, as, uh, as your own research has shown, uh, in terms of producing democratic reforms as measured in terms of things like competitive elections, freedom of speech, those types of what we might think of uh, liberal uh, negative freedoms. Um, and, and so this, this leaves the question, kind of the next step for us is thinking about, well, what has the track record been in terms of making broader progress towards social inclusion? The types of things that the, the Maoists that I was uh, was talking the Maoists that I were talking to uh, were interested in achieving, and so what we've tried to do is to take a kind of cross national analysis and to look at cases of transitions to democracy where movements have been successful in terms of uh, making uh, bringing about some type of liberal de democratic reforms, and trying to see how often does that uh, result in uh, greater steps towards inclusion. And what we've tentatively found so far is, sure enough, uh, democratization that leads to inclusion is far more rare. It's a much smaller subset of the cases in which democratic reforms occur. So could you, I, I'm curious about sort of the point that you just raised there at the end. Could you tell us a little bit more about you know, why this is such a rare occurrence and perhaps uh, what are some of the characteristics of transitions where where this does happen? Yeah, um, so I think when we think about the ways in which democratization transitions to democracy happen, it sheds some light as to what might be going on. Uh, I think the first is that we often think of transitions to democracy happening in one of two ways. One is from the top down. Uh, what some scholars call kind of negotiated pacts amongst elites. And so kind of by the very nature and description of this, we can see how, why that might not lead to more inclusive uh, reforms. When it's just elites sitting around the table, forging pacts, forging deals, even if that uh, provides for open political competition, uh, we're not talking about major steps for inclusion. The other kind of school of thought about democratization uh, thinks about democratic transitions that come from the bottom up. And I think this is where we see more promise for, uh, for advances towards inclusion. And I think democratic transitions that are sparked by civil resistance campaigns, by mass protests that bring people out into the street, have a greater chance of uh, resulting in the end in uh, advances towards ethnic and, and social inclusion. But even then, uh, it's not that frequent. It's still a small subset of, of those cases. Uh, one of the things that I uh, found in, in prior research is that marginalized groups are less likely on the whole to initiate campaigns of nonviolent resistance. That a lot of the ways in which we understand civil resistance and Gandhian nonviolent tactics to work don't seem as, uh, as, as amenable, as viable for marginalized communities. This idea of bringing huge numbers of people out into the street, that's a more difficult thing to do for more socially isolated groups many of which happen to be smaller. This idea of kind of persuading and winning over regime elites, getting key members of a government to defect and, and switch sides, uh, that seems less possible when we're talking about mobilization by uh, minority groups. So what we found is that the, the chances of success are, are higher uh, in terms of achieving social inclusion when it is minority groups who are actually participating in the, in the campaign. And that often what we think, what I think is happening um, is that this is coming about by some process of, of coalition, coalition. That often it is, in fact, more privileged uh, elite groups who are leading these campaigns of civil resistance for democratization. But in their efforts to build a broad coalition, to get as many people out in the streets as possible, they make deals with organizations that are representing marginalized communities. And when those deals that they foster uh, lead to some kind of promise that in future government will have a more inclusive, uh, uh, more inclusive society, uh, and and provide kind of specific uh, issues on the political platforms that these marginalized communities are advocating for. I think that's when we might see the most success for civil resistance campaigns, uh, leading to eventually uh, a state of, of greater political inclusion. 
thanks, Chez. That's really uh, that's really fascinating. I think so. To get a little bit more detail on this, I'd like to turn to Subindra now. Uh, Subindra, Chez mentioned uh, his work uh, in Nepal, and of course, uh, you've been doing research on sort of uh, political contention in Nepal for for a very long time now. Um, I'm curious uh, to hear. Could you give us just a little bit of an overview on? How have uh, marginalized groups in Nepal participated in <clears throat> nonviolent action movements? Um, thank you, Jonathan. Um, I think uh, they they you know they have been um, participating in movements since 1990 or before that in the organizations, but they were brought together by the mass movement, the 96. So their voices have been uh, there uh, since 1996. And in 2006, when the 19, uh, 19 days long movement came upon, then I all the make other people that it is not, not only the mass who are raising people who have come to the street, is their voices too. So. So when they were putting, they were having this violent movement in collaboration with Maoist, they appealed to those sort of uh, inclusive sort of stuff. But once they chose non-violent movement, like people like us, me, come um, upper caste group, we are all taking part in the movement. So it started uh, long ago, even before 1990, not that much. Um, but after after the 2006 the moment, I think that made everyone heard about it. Thank you so much, Samindra. I'm sorry. I think your audio was a, a little bit uh, a little bit going in and out, so I'm not sure I quite caught all of that. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think I've got the I've got the main points. Uh, so you mentioned in particular a lot of participation by marginalized <clears throat> groups in the the movement in 2006. Um, how did that then? Uh, was there then greater inclusion of those groups after the 2006 movement, or, or what did those sort of political deals look like uh, after the movement was over? No, it was not only the, only the inclusion of the uh, different groups or marginalized groups in 2006 movement. It was a movement by all the groups. You know, at the time the common enemy was uh, the king, so political party leaders, uh, then citizens, other people whoever were in Nepal, they all participated in that movement. But the movement was for, you know, inclusive democratic and progressive sort of uh, constitution or, you know, the constitution that should be written by the constitution assembly. And it was mainly to be, you know, inclu inclusion for the sake of uh, marginalized people. So <clears throat> what I was saying earlier is that when the, there was a more, there's a movement, violent movement going on from 1996 to 2006, not only not many people participated, but when the became nonviolent, then the people from all walks of life went over there, despite knowing the fact that the moment was for the inclusion. It was it was you know the country was if you uh, the country so far in the state and the in the society it is a brown chetra dominant. The one particular group is dominant, despite knowing the fact that they will be losing the all the their injured of life participated and in that movement supposed to be for the inclusive uh, constitution assembly. And will you say that those uh, goals of inclusion uh, have been met uh, in Nepal after 2006? Um, that that is interesting, you know. But that's what we were. Um, I mean, uh, my research finds that I think we were back to square one. Like it started with the kind of you know we started thinking about Nepal, where the you know if you look at it from 2006 until 2015, you know all these movements or whatever debates that we have in Kathmandu that tried to save that was all about what the country should look like what should be its, its structure, you know, what is the nationalism sort of thing. So there were so many dialogue was happening. It was, it was being uh, written, it was being um, discussed from different perspectives. And there were so many policies that came, affirmative actions came into force. There were so many other movements. And we had this uh, elections in 2008, 
that was really, really inclusive in terms of uh, political representation. So many marginalized groups uh, became members of the uh, Constituent Assembly. And then when it came in 2013, you know, the, the number of the, uh, of the representation came down. And by the time we are in 2015, then it was back to, I think, square one. You know, like uh, we we tried to, whatever we tried to accept after coming uh, in 2015, the deep social division that we had or the inclusion issue that we had, uh, we couldn't complete it. Uh, so in terms of policies and papers or, you know, whatever the political leaders, uh, I mean, made the, made the speeches or arguments, it was all good, but the only part, the difficult part for Nepal is the implementation. So we failed to implement whatever we promised we would do. So, but I mean, saying that, I mean, despite saying that, what I would say is that we are a good track because, you know, we have within nine, 10, 15 days, we have seen so many affirmative action uh, that the government uh, has taken uh, to make the people, uh, to make the country, to make this uh, national institution inclusive. We haven't done the, enough to make it more inclusive. Thank you so much, Subindra. I'd like to turn to Titik now. Uh, you've also been examining some similar questions uh, in the context of Indonesia. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about the transition in Indonesia that you're researching uh, and what the relationship was between nonviolent action and inclusion there? Thank you, Jonathan. Uh, street uh, demonstrations in Jakarta increased in the mid-1990s because the public felt disappointed with President Suharto's handling of corruption, collusion, nepotism, and public protest. After he was uh, re-elected for the seventh time in May 1997 and the financial crisis hit Indonesia in July 1997, student activists in Jakarta began street demonstrations on May 3rd, 1998 and continued until President Suharto stepped down on May 21st, 1998. The student mobilization took place after political and military groups supporting President Suharto and opposition groups disagreed on the leadership transition process. Observing that student mobilization was on the rise, various social organizations led by urban middle-class intellectuals joined uh, the students. While the, the students acted, acted as a mobilizing force to pressure President Suharto to step down, the middle-class non-student uh, intellectuals took the initiatives in proposing six uh, demands for reform. First, uh, take Suharto and his cronies to court. Second, amend the 1945 constitution. Third, eliminate the dual function of the national army. Fourth, eliminate uh, corruption, collusion, and nepotism. Fifth, over the widest possible regional autonomy. And sixth, enforce the rule of uh, law. To your second question, the 19... Uh, the 1998 civil resistance movement and uh, peace building initiative uh, carried out by social organizations have the potential to increase the social inclusion of marginalized groups in Indonesia, even though outcomes vary across marginalized groups. Two additional points should be stressed here. First, by marginalized groups, I mean social groups that are based on categories of gender, social class, ethnicity, and religion. This kind of grouping has been made based on two types of major problems facing Indonesia at that time. The first problem is about nation building, ethnicity, and religion fall under this category. And the second one is about problems other than nation building, gender and class fall under this category. And second, the differences in the outcomes of social inclusions depend on, I will just mention three factors here the degree of state repression, the level of organizational capacity, and whether or not post-authoritarian government leadership existed. The, sec the, the social inclusion of women in Indonesia is greater than farmers and workers for two reasons. First, under the authoritarian regime, gender-based organizations in Indonesia were less repressed than class-based organizations because some elements of the state were open to women's non-traditional roles in promoting economic growth. That was the key policy agenda of the state at the time. 
Second, gender-based organizations were more able than class-based organizations to seize the opportunity when it came using non-material sources of power, especially in the form of creativity and initiative. For example, the women's organizations seized the opportunity afforded by the fall of Suharto and the riots that led to sexual violence targeting at least Chinese in May 1998 by urging the new government to establish the national commission on violence against uh, women. In addition, the social inclusion of ethnic minority groups in Indonesia is greater than religious minority groups because although the social organizations representing ethnic minority groups in Indonesia were heavily repressed by the authoritarian regime and lack organizational leadership, the post-authoritarian government leadership played a crucial role in improving the living conditions of those marginalized ethnic groups. In this case, the people of East Timor or Timor-Leste and ethnic Chinese people. Post-authoritarian government leadership here means the qualities of a moderate leader who is willing to accommodate complaints and from the people and find solutions. And both external and internal environments such as family, education, and workplace that value cross uh, cultural communication seem to greatly influence how President Suharto's successors, in, the, in this case, President Habibi and President Abdurrahman Wahid made the decision at that time. So living and working in Germany have uh, shaped the mindset of President Habibi who openly accepted a peaceful solution rather than a military one in dealing with the issue of East Timor. For example, to demonstrate seriousness, President Habibi took a, a critical step by offering wide-ranging special autonomy or independence if autonomy were rejected. The people of Timor-Leste finally opted for independence through a UN-sponsored referendum held in August 1999. And similar to the people of Timor-Leste, ethnic Chinese people enjoyed better living conditions. It was mainly thanks to President Abdurrahman Wahid, popularly known as Usdur, who played a critical role in advocating for the social cultural rights of any Chinese Indonesia. For example, he took a major step by revoking the 1967 act, which banned ethnic uh, Chinese Indonesia from uh, any Chinese Indonesia from practicing their faith and preserving their cultural uh, traditions. And this achievement has been made possible due to the influence of Usdur's egalitarian family background. He comes from a traditional Muslim family that highly values cultural diversity and is a son of Nahlatul Ulama leader. Great, thank you for that overview, Tatik. Now, one thing that uh, Ches mentioned uh, in his his overview of the kind of the broad statistical research was that participation in the sort of nonviolent action campaign that initiated the transition by marginalized groups then seemed to lead to more inclusion uh, across the board. So you mentioned sort of marginalized groups in Indonesia across several dimensions, uh, gender, class, ethnicity, religion. Was there a lot of participation by these marginalized groups in that movement that you were describing against, uh, against Suharto in, the, in 1997-1998? Yes, yes, that's right. Uh, urban, especially poor urban people, joined the protests at the time in 1998, and uh, their protests were led by, well, by the uh, the urban middle class intellectuals. But the urban middle class intellectuals demanding change, including among others, students, journalists, lawyers, academics, uh, and social activists. Interesting. So uh, a question I'd like to uh, maybe go back to, to Ches on, but I'd be curious to hear the thoughts of, of all three of you. Um, so you know, I think you've raised, uh, you've all raised that you know, uh, creating institutions of electoral democracy may be somewhat easier than forging these deeper kinds of inclusion for the, for the most marginalized groups. Are there ways that, uh, say, international actors or other outside observers who want to help facilitate this sort of deeper and more comprehensive inclusion, uh, how can this be promoted or supported uh, from, you know, from perhaps outside the country as well as by activists uh, within, within countries going through these kinds of transitions? Uh, Ches, I think I'll turn to you first and then, uh, and then hear thoughts maybe from Subindra and Tatik as well. Sure. Uh, am I allowed to say I don't know? 
I think this is a really tricky question. Um, and because I think we see kind of a, a two-sided nature to this type of external support. Uh, on the one hand, uh, external actors can provide a, a real boost of support for a movement, uh, both in terms of providing um, resources and knowledge, uh, kind of material things that are really helpful for a movement that is challenging a, a government, uh, as well as uh, imposing certain types of costs, whether they be uh, sanctions, restrictions, diplomatic pressure on the regime um, that can put greater coercive pressure on them to get to the bargaining table and to make these types of concessions, especially if external actors make uh, these types of steps towards inclusion an important part of what they want to see uh, the regime do as part of an external, uh, as part of a negotiated settlement. At the same time, our empirical evidence about uh, the role of external actors and the support they provide has been pretty mixed in terms of not showing kind of a clear relationship in terms of helping movements succeed overall. And we found that it can be particularly perilous in these cases in which questions of identity and social inclusion are at the center of the, uh, uh, of the campaign. And Subinder and Tatik may be able to talk about uh, specifically the way that this played out in, in those two countries. Uh, but it can be a real opportunity, actually, for the regime to rally nationalism against marginalized communities by pointing to the relationships that the marginalized communities forge with international actors and say, uh, look, they're not uh, these international actors are coming and they're trying to tear apart the, our society. Um, this, is, this is not the direction that we should be heading. Salim, yeah. Yeah, please, Subinder, go ahead. I think in the, in, okay, I think in the case of Nepal, it was really initially, uh, since the peace process, international community made their post peace building agenda as inclusion, which was taken, uh, I mean, positively. Uh, but I think uh, they were doing pretty good, like they were helping to helping, uh, you know, support marginalized community to build their capacity, forming uh, caucuses and uh, helping them, you know, uh, to, to with knowledge um, and also be politically active, everything. And it's going well. But what we also saw at that time was there's a kind of competition among the international act to, actors to support. So there's a kind of, you know, so many international, international actors were supporting so many groups and then that was, uh, they were in, in the news all the time and that made uh, the government kind of you know, uh, not happy about it. So if you look at 2008 in Nepal's, uh, you know, uh, CA election, it was really going well. And after 2013, the government started blaming international community saying that they were trying to, uh, you know, destroy the Nepali peace process by helping the marginalized communities. So it started uh, backfiring. And in 2014, the government came out with the policy saying that you cannot support, you can support the development activities, not the social issues. So as far what I think is the, the way they supported, international community supported from the very beginning, very good in terms of making the, the you know, help with that chase said, knowledge with tactics and everything. But as there are many competitors, you know, international um, in INGOs competitors as well, it also backfired a bit. So I think a slow and coordinated would help a lot. Great, thank you, Subindra. Uh, Tatik, do you have thoughts on this question? Yes, uh, sure. Um, one of the main takeaways to be learned from the Indonesian case was that the involvement of international actors is critically important to improve inclusion of the nonviolent uh, action campaigns. In the short term, I would say that international actors should help increase the capacity of social organizations to create greater inclusion by giving those organizations financial support for any social activities that are oriented toward social empowerment and by conducting training in nonviolent and peace building skills for nonviolent activists and peace builders who work both at the national and local levels. And in the long term, 
I would say that uh, international actors should have create conducive environments that can promote the growth of the new middle classes through the provision of quality education. For example, international actors either working alone or working together with national governments offer scholarship to people from developing countries. Great, thank you so much, Tatik. I think with that, we will uh, conclude our first conversation. Uh, thank you so much to all of you for sharing some of the findings from this groundbreaking research with us. Uh, it's really exciting to hear, and we look forward to the, the final publication uh, of your research. Uh, so having heard uh, about this from Chez, Subindra, and Tatik, uh, we'll turn now to some reactions uh, from a panel of academic and practitioner experts. I'm joined now by three outstanding panelists to discuss this question of nonviolent action and long-term inclusion uh, in more depth. Uh, Rosa Emilia Salamanca is director of the Institute of Social and Economic Research in Action, uh, an organization working for peace, human rights, and democracy from a feminist perspective in Colombia. Uh, Mona Ansari is a lawyer, human rights advocate, and former commissioner of the National Human Rights Commission of Nepal. And finally, Deepak Tapa is Director of Social Science Baha, a research organization based in Kathmandu, and he's written extensively on Nepal's contemporary political developments. Uh, welcome to all of you, and thank you so much uh, for joining us today. Uh, I'd like to turn to uh, Deepak first. Uh, Deepak, I'm curious to hear your reactions to what was just presented by Chez, Subindra, and Titik. Uh, what are your thoughts on this relationship between nonviolent action and inclusion, uh, both in the case of Nepal, which, which was discussed, and perhaps more broadly as well? Um, thank you. Thank you, Jonathan. Um, I will speak only for Nepal because uh, that's where I work, and I will not be able to comment much uh, on what is happening elsewhere, although I do keep up with the developments there. Uh, in the case of Nepal, what was presented earlier uh, more or less sums up uh, the, the situation in Nepal. Uh, although, as uh, Sivindra put it, I would not be as, um, let's say, pessimistic uh, as he was, as he sounded. Uh, there have been developments uh, over the past 15 years. Uh, yes, there have been setbacks, uh, particularly since uh, 2013 and after the uh, promulgation of the 2015 constitution. Uh, but there have been advances uh, that will be very difficult uh, to roll back uh, uh, anytime soon. Uh, attempts are certainly being made uh, by uh, people in power at present. Uh, the government of Nepal is presently led by someone who does not believe anyway in the idea of inclusion, uh, has been always against that. And the irony is that he was given the responsibility of implementing a constitution that is supposed to usher in um, a very different idea of Nepal. Uh, but there is, uh, despite all his efforts, uh, I think uh, people are realizing uh, to, 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 to a large extent uh, that um, the gains made in the past uh, 10, 15 years uh, are here to stay. Um, there will be undercutting and undermining done in, at uh, various levels. Um, and yes, there have been rollbacks. But um, yes, uh, you know, they're, they're here to stay and uh, hopefully, you know, uh, we can build on them further uh, rather than, you know, uh, roll them back further. I'll stop here for now. Thank you. Great, thank you so much. Um, I'd be curious to hear uh, your thoughts as well on you know, the, the, the issue that uh, Chez and Subindra brought up about you know, the participation of marginalized groups uh, in sort of nonviolent action, in this case, the, the 2006 nonviolent movement against the monarchy, and how that may have impacted uh, the, the kinds of inclusion that have, that have come about uh, that you were you're just describing. Uh, do you see a connection there or, or not so much? Yes, uh, certainly. 
Um, but you know, like the the 2006 movement uh, that ultimately led to the ouster of the king um, was a combination of a number of factors. One was obviously the the, the uh, people tired of the uh, insurgency that had been going on and looking for ways in which they could end the insurgency, uh, which would uh, definitely mean the uh, you know the, the the movement against the king. So that was one. Uh, and then, the, the, along with uh, the uh, the ouster of the king, was the implicit promise that uh, the, the the future Nepal uh, would be a much more inclusive society, uh, because the five years or so previous to the uh, the movement, uh, there had been a greater realization that uh, one of the reasons why we have so much discord and dispute and conflict in the country is because of a lack of uh, inclusion of uh, you know you know the majority of the population so there was the idea that you know the the uh, the movement against the king would result not only in peace but also the creation or the crafting of a different kind of nepal we called it a new nepal at the time uh, and definitely you know the, 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 there was this feeling uh, now over time uh, what a new Nepal, what a new Nepal meant, differed for different groups of people because there are so many interest groups involved. Uh, all had this vision of a new Nepal, but the visions certainly differed from interest group to interest group. Hence, the, the long time it took, uh, almost nine years, uh, for the uh, constitution to be drafted. Wonderful, thank you, Deepak. Uh, I'd like to turn to to Mona now. Uh, now, Mona, you've been, you know, of course, at the forefront of fighting for greater inclusion uh, in Nepal as part of the National Human Rights Commission. And I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on what have been some of the challenges of that fight um, and how has the fact that Nepal's transition happened through this, you know, mass people's movement uh, affected that fight for greater inclusion from, from your perspective? Thank you so much, uh, and uh, good morning and good evening to you all for bringing me here in this uh, uh, interesting discussion. Um, uh, whenever uh, this question comes to in my mind, and uh, for the why inclusion, why inclusion and why nonviolent movement on the inclusion, the quickly answer in my mind actually uh, peace and stability for me actually, what I have been seeing since my childhood. I, I, I saw so many marginalization, exclusion in the, in the country. Uh, when I was in a class six, this is a story very much connected with me. My father was a carpenter and uh, I was in a class uh, six uh, in government school studying. At that time, I noticed uh, there is a, a scholarship for Dalit was very initially started. And you know, my uh, in my class, uh, there is uh, like uh, two or three Dalit uh, student who, who is not uh, coming regularly to school. And my principal told me, are you interested for that scholarship? He's asking to me. So the question is here, uh, is it uh, that is scholarship for Muslim? No because we are not uh, known as then a citizen, actually. We, we hold the citizenship, but we are not, uh, we always treated as an outsider. This is the one, one uh, what I have been faced in my cl class six. This is my real ex example, uh, real experience. And, uh, and I, I was surprised and I returned to home and I told my father, I'm a Dalit. And my father explained to me that our law said that you are untouchable, but not that much untouchable. How the Dalit is untouchable? I suppose to be like, uh, you know, the gold water. Uh, if, uh, uh, if some Dalit is uh, turns to upper caste like Subindra, like uh, Deepakzi. So they have to be like, uh, before entering their house, they have to purif purify with the cold water, not me. <laughs> so this kind of uh, behavior we have been faced in uh, since very early days. But of course, in a, in a, in a you know, uh, the conflict uh, uh, took a place in Nepal. 
I was uh, uh, in a, it is a, like, a, was very highly desired that the, uh, when a CPA, Comprehensive Peace Accord was signed, at that time, there was a very few uh, benchmarks that one is constituent assembly election. Second is uh, ensure inclusion in all state institution. And then third is uh, reform the government, reform like uh, governance and uh, government mechanism system, all the state institution. And of course, the other one is the most important is uh, transitional justice. But later when I monitor and I watch uh, very closely all those uh, go ongoing process, uh, since my practice and my work from the Women Commission throughout the Human Rights Commission, I have not exactly feel whether this the inclusion is fully applied, fully practiced, no. Because after CPA signed, till today, there is a people on the street, still indigenous, Tharus, Dalit, Muslim, Madesi, women. They still are demanding for equality, inclusion, treatment for the equal. So this is, the, this is a, like a, all these are nonviolent movement, except a few. Because uh, when you know, uh, before the promulgation of the 2015 constitution, I was just reading uh, this uh, this afternoon when I I supposed to be part of this. Uh, I was reading like uh, constitutions uh, um, uh, article uh, forty two, article forty two. You know, it said it state that all organs of the state will be inclusive, but the provision relating to different governance. Um, government and constitutional body do not ensure inclusion the fact that the constitution was drafted by people with it. This was my article's line. Intentionally in reflected in many articles of the constitution. Everybody knows that Khasari group, you know, this is the upper class. This term have to be noted like uh, in my, um, uh, in the constitution, Khasari group has remained the most uh, advantaged group ever since uh, the unification of Nepal 2,240 uh, years ago. And this, uh, this is the group that control the state affairs, every state affairs affairs in the last 240 years. All the drafters of the constitution, of the whether they were politician or bureaucrats, were from this Khasari groups and uh, hence they put this group quality for inclusion that uh, effect right of the minority, minority community. The constitution does not define any other groups, but the, it, it defines Khasari group, whose ruling decade and decade of Nepal. Uh, Brahmins and other like Thakuri, Sanyasi, the Khasari group cannot be defined uh, uh, defined marginalized group uh, on any basis, uh, whether it is, uh, uh, this is my opinion, SDI or any other government index. So, so, so the question is, uh, as Deepak Ji mentioned, I don't know, there is a missing part of the, your research or, 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 or it, it, uh, maybe I missed out. So, so some, sometime I've, this is the real realization for Nepal, inclusion or exclusion, uh, whether uh, is rightly going on, but I have not seen as, as, as like uh, our political party or state actors have realized that inclusion is the need for peace and stability for the country. 
and this is the this is the process of uh, uh, nation building actually thank you for those observations and i think that very you know important emphasis on kind of the the ways that new institutions are created and the people who create those institutions uh, then really shapes uh, what the impact of them is going to be uh, one sort of very quick follow-up for you um, I'd be curious to hear you talk a little bit more about, you know, the kinds of movements that have tried to push against that. You mentioned this a couple of times, um, you know, the kind of continued push by marginalized groups sort of from the outside through protests or other kinds of actions. Uh, what have made some of those, have some of those been effective? Uh, if so, are there ones that have been more effective than others? And what has helped them to, to work or not to work? Actually, uh, some of the movement is still going on. For example, Dalit movement. Uh, Dalit uh, were treated in Nepal as an untouchable group. Still, we have a law, very strict law in, a, in the constitution. Uh, untouchability is uh, strictly punishable. Uh, but uh, the question is that uh, uh, this is this group is still facing everyday challenges their life have been uh, threatened they have been mass killing if you go to google there is a news link the last year same month the group of uh, dalit uh, were killed this is just a name of uh, like a love affair with the upper caste girls so uh, tharus yeah, people said, like, if you are going to talk with the various Nepali people, they said, uh, in the constitution, there is a Tharu commission, there is a Dalit commission, there is a so many marginalized group, uh, groups, uh, a thematic commission is based on, the, uh, is, is a form, uh, constituted in the constitution. But the question is, like, uh, this is the real realization or just the political game? Maybe Deepak, Deepak Papa also can add some of the things, but uh, this is my observation uh, being a practitioner and uh, what I have been observing with uh, many, many of like uh, many painful stories actually. And if, if, if any, uh, any marginalized community is uh, supposed to be raised for such, a, such a issues in the measure major debate or majoritarian debate, they, they either face uh, allegation or defamation uh, or, uh, I mean, there is just so many incident, so many incident. I have been also facing the same way, so many incident. So this is, this is the continuation of uh, something like a ruling, ruling class, uh, influence on the state mechanism. Great, thank you so much. I'd like to turn to uh, Rosa Emilia now. Um, you're coming at this from a, a somewhat different situation uh, in Colombia, uh, but I'm curious to hear sort of your reactions to the research and the conversation that we've been having thus far. Uh, how does this resonate uh, or, or not uh, with how nonviolent action has affected inclusion uh, in Colombia? Well, thank you so much for this invitation. And it's very nice to see my colleagues here and also to hear all what they have said already. And I think it resonates a lot, not because we are in the other side of the world and because we are a Latin American uh, country, we don't resonate with all these things because we really know exclusion also. I think for the Global South, the exclusion is a very important issue. And when we talk about resolving or trying to, to, to put other kind of ways of resolving our conflicts and so on, so from a nonviolent uh, vision and as practitioners to have other ideas about inclusion, these are very, very important discussions. I think that the East and West, sometimes we are, especially in, in the Global South, so near in our reflections and in our the way we understand the, 
the situation. So first I want to say that this 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 thing of nonviolent and and inclusion is very complicated because when people are highly excluded and and they have been in conflict environments in conflict contexts is very difficult because there is something that is happening in the minds of everyone and some kind, the speeches and the values and many things, practices of conflict and confrontation will come inside like the way culture behaves. So there is a lot of change. You have to change. You know that we work a lot saying we have to transform, transforming ourselves. So there is a lot of things that we have to change in our mind, in our the ways we act, because as we naturalize violence against women, we naturalize violence against people in general. So I think there is a huge work we have to do still within us and with us and with people trying to understand and trying to change concepts, ways and behaviors that have been so deeply in long conflicts absorbed by cultures that you have to change that in a very high way. So I think that uh, even our social movements, we, we have to change. And we sometimes we are, have, we are being stacked we are stuck in what we call the modern uh, ways of behavior. So we always are trying to find ourselves in confrontation all the time because there are many power relations that we have to change. And, and you not always find a way to change these power relations in a very non-violent non way because people and power are always or many times having a lot of violent attitudes against nonviolent people or against people that want to change things in another way. So I think there is a, still a, a long conversation between what means nonviolent, what and how nonviolent can be effective to change power relations because power relations are so uh, deeply rooted in our societies. So this is one of the things I, I will write because we really have to, to find another way to, to change our own behavior. So I'm, I'm trying to start this conversation from us to others. And then this idea of inclusion, I think that it's like if we had a model and then how we include people in that model. And I think that this is not an issue of, of how we include and how we make people going the same, uh, like if like we were doing a pizza, so we are going to put many things and we don't know what is going to be tasted. It will be always pizza. So what I think is that we, what, when we talk about inclusion, it's not about minorities, it's about ideas, it's about ideas of life, it's about ideas of, of what are women thinking, but what are the diversity of women thinking? What are the different indigenous and native groups thinking about what is life and what life looks uh, uh, like for them? And what are Afro-descendant people in, in Colombia thinking about their own way of behavior and the, the way they think they, they approach to life? So this is not a thing of how we can include this minority. Sometimes I feel very, I, I feel so strange because sometimes uh, they speak how we can include a minority from women. And we are more than have of the humans of the world. So why are we treated like, like minorities? So I think I want really, and I suppose that yes, I, I really like very much the intervention of Titik and how this, all this research can, can really 
problemize these kind of concepts minorities inclusion uh, how we can pro in, in a contemporary way what does it mean now for us so when we are talking about discussion about ideas we are talking about the designing of another way of a state we are not talking about the same kind of state we are talking about a state that will have answers and will respond to different ideas of the world not only to one not only to one way of being democratic no uh, to one way of achieving spiritual security as we say because we are so diverse in our approaches even to god so we need a state that will really recognize all this human diversity of ideas and approaches to life so i think we are not longer asking for imported institutions because when we talk about new institutions what are we talking about we are talking about new institutions that are coming from a preformed way of behavior and thinking about democracy or we are really thinking what kind of democracy we want for our countries in a way that inclusiveness will have different kind of dynamics in discussion and practice in that democracy that will be designed from our own way and will be like ownership by us because when we have new institutions that are important they are not us they are not our own process they are not our own answers so i think there is a lot of discussion that i think is very interesting about this and finally I, I think that in power relations that you find in gender issues, in, in identity and ethnical issues, and power relations are very tricky, very tricky. And I admire how the elites of different ways, because we don't have only one elite, we have the patriarchal elite that is divided in many ways, but we also have the economical elite and we have the political elite. So we are really dealing with a lot of elites that are very different and sometimes they are joined, but sometimes they are uh, divided just to play different roles. So I think that we are talking about exclusion, equality and economics also. And I think for this moment of our lives, economical issues are substantial to peace. These are substantial. So we, what are we talking about? economical issues only inclusion of of how everyone has a job or also we are talking about how we are thinking about how we would like to ownership land or how we want to ownership other things that are really in the moment and the, in the in the part in the highest way of the of the way where we have to think about the planet and we have to think about other things so i think now we have to redefine what we are thinking because i think seriously that we are in a cyber uh, like an opportunity to having a new speech about what do we mean about inclusion and nonviolence for a country that is so important because we are now reaching a new way of violence and we really don't want to have to leave that again Thank you so much, Rosamilia, for, for that you know really important focus on complexity, on making sure that we are not looking at these things in a in a simplistic way, uh, and ensuring that we are we're looking we're not just thinking about inclusion as you know who are the minorities at the table, but also transforming our ways of thinking and the power relations that are that are shaping that are shaping our social, political, and economic institutions. I think that's that's so crucial. As you said, I think this is only the very beginning of a of a longer conversation that needs to that needed to happen on all these issues. Um, and so I hope that uh, unfortunately this is where we will have to to end our conversation here today. Um, but I hope that all of you who have joined us today uh, will continue to to join USIP as we continue to have these conversations about 
nonviolent action? What does it mean? How can it be effective in changing these power relations? How can we be having these broader, more complex conversations uh, about creating better institutions uh, for, for all of us? Um, so I just want to say thank you once again, uh, Rosemilia, Mona, and Deepak, uh, for being here with us this morning, for sharing your insights with us, and for all that you do to work for peace. Uh, thanks again to all of you for joining us. Uh, this event is the, the last event in our particular People, Power, Peace, and Democracy series, where we've examined the intersections of nonviolent action, peace building, and, democ and democratization. Uh, you can find the recordings of all these events at usip.org events. Uh, stay tuned as publications on these topics continue to be released in the coming months uh, and as we continue to hold new events uh, on, these, uh, on these topics. So thank you once again, uh, and I hope that you all have a wonderful rest of your day. Thank you for listening to this event. If you'd like to listen to more events or explore our other podcasts, visit usip.org forward slash podcasts.